You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Take the ribbon from your hair. Shake it loose and let it fall. Laying soft against my skin. Winner by technical knockout. Like the shadow on the wall. Hey, somebody talk tonight. Come and lay down by my side. Let me buy you a drink. Till the early morning light I love you so much All I'm taking is your time I don't care Help me make it through the night All a man needs a woman with a good job I don't care what's right or wrong Leave you can stay at my place tonight You got to understand about her. She's a juicy. Let the devil take tomorrow. You've never done it before? Certainly not. Cause tonight I need a friend. Can I buy a cup of coffee? Yeah. Yesterday is dead and gone. Life makes a beeline for the drain. And tomorrow's out of sight. Four days, I'm gonna be 30. And it's bad to be alone. There are some women that love you for yourself, but that doesn't last long. Help me make it through the night. If you wanna win bad enough, you win. There ain't no way in hell this dude's gonna beat me. Cause he's too old, I'm too fast, I'm gonna be all over him. I'm gonna kick his so bad every time he takes a bite of food tomorrow, he's gonna think of me. He's gonna know he's been in a fight. Cause I'm gonna hit him with everything. I'm not just gonna beat that I'm gonna kill him. I don't want to be alone. What? Help me make it through the night. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. Also back in the booth this week is Mr. Jedediah Ayers. And very surprised. This week, we are looking at Fat City, based on a book by and adapted by Leonard Gardner. The film was directed by John Huston and stars Stacy Keach as Tully, an over-the-hill fighter who says he wants to pick himself up and revive his career after he meets Ernie, played by Jeff Bridges, a kid who seems to have a lot in common in the boxing world. We see their stories parallel and contrast one another as we watch Fat City unfold. We will be getting into spoilers on this episode, so be warned if you haven't seen Fat City. Go ahead and track down a copy. We will still be here. Jedediah, when was the first time you saw Fat City, and what did you think? Yeah, I only saw it for the first time a couple of years ago. It's one that had been in the back of my mind is, you know, something I had to get around to seeing for, for a long time, but I didn't didn't actually do it. I think I got it through Netflix dvd search a couple of years ago and um when i was thinking about closing out my account i'm glad i i stuck around long enough to get it through the dvd because it, it's it's something i've seen probably four or five times by now i like it a lot and i read the book after seeing it and uh, loved the book too how about you heather 
Bad City was a, was a film that I've been familiar with for years and had always really wanted to see it, mainly based on the cast, because I'm a huge fan both of Stacey Keach and Susan Tyrell's. I actually got to watch it sitting down in one swoop a few weeks ago preparing for this podcast, and it was every bit that I thought it would be and more. I absolutely loved it. It's a glorious heartbreaker. I had this one on my DVR for a long time, taped it off of, taped it, well, recorded it off of TCM quite a while ago, and then we ended up switching DVRs, getting an upgrade, and so I lost it, but it stayed on my mind for a long time, and again, kind of like you guys, it was like, oh, this cast and this time period and the director, John Houston, I love his work. So it was one of those where I just said, I really need to watch this. So it was a first time watch for the show. And I'm really glad that I saw it because this is such an interesting mix of character actors and really actors who are starting off. I mean, Keach and Bridges hadn't been in a ton of stuff. My goodness, do they just kind of all knock it out of the park? I can't think of a film that's almost more just like perfectly cast than this one. It's literally, it's no surprise to me that it's, I need, which I still need to read the book that it's based on a book because there's something very literary about these characters and just, you know, Houston did such a great job, I think, of showing, just giving us, I mean, the film's only like 98 minutes long. It's not a long movie, but you get the idea of each character perfectly without kind of overdoing it. Yeah, and it's not a long novel. It's a it's a fairly short book, but the pacing of the film is very cinematic. It's it doesn't feel like they're trying to cram a bunch of stuff in, you know, to to get everything from the uh the book and uh the the omissions uh I thought were kind of interesting, especially since Gardner wrote wrote the screenplay himself, but the uh yeah, the film is 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 very comfortable being a film. Uh, which is not always the case with uh, adaptations. Yeah, it was adapted by Gardner, but there's definitely a John Huston touch to this. And it is really interesting to read that screenplay and see, to, to, to read the book, to read the screenplay, to watch the movie and see how it changed throughout that process. Because the screenplay, the one that I read, which was credited to both uh, Houston and Gardner from, I want to say it was late 1970. And that's 132 pages long. So there's no way they're going to make a 132 minute version of this. But at one point, apparently maybe they were. Um, but yeah, just to see where those trims came in. And we'll hear from Stacy Keach later on to talk about some of the scenes that he shot that, weren't in the film, but it sounds like a lot of the stuff was shot and that it ended up being trimmed out in the final edit. I would love to see what a longer version of this might be like, though at 98 minutes, it moves pretty quick and it's a, a nice pace. There's no fat on this stake. Every move is perfect. Everything just fits how it needs to fit. I think this is one of those movies to me that it's almost like, I mean, this is going to be a very weird comparison, obviously not in subject matter <laughs> or approach, but it's almost like when you watch Psycho and that movie has very little fat. Like it's just per perfect. Every move, every acting, you know, all the acting, everything. And it's just like where it needs to be. And I think Fat City is like that. There's, there's nothing I would ever want to see changed about this movie. 
It's also languid, which I, I like. It manages to be that while moving very fast and being a pretty concise film that never feels rushed. It always feels like it's taking its time and, and all the, all the character development, you know, everything that happens is, it feels very organic. It, it never feels like you're building up to something constructed or, you know, prefabricated. It feels very natural and very organic. But like you said, it's brief, not a long film. Well, I think it also works, too, because we essentially have two protagonists in this film, and we get to see them being contrasted against one another, the way that their careers are kind of paralleling one another. Because fairly early in the film, we've got Tully, the Stacey Keach character, meeting Ernie, the Jeff Bridges character. Now, Tully, he's... A few weeks at one point, I'm not sure how long the period of this film takes, but at one point he says he's going to be turning 30 pretty soon. So he's had his career. He's had a wife. He no longer seems to have either. He's out of shape. He wants to get back in shape. I guess he wants to take a chance, uh, take a shot at becoming a fighter again. So he's kind of at the end of his career. And then he meets Ernie, who really has no interest in being a boxer until he talks to Tully, this 18-year-old kid played by Jeff Bridges. And then we get to see Ernie, I can't really say his rise to fame, because it's a very rocky road that he is on after he meets Tully. And then we get to see Tully, again, it's not really a straight decline that Tully is on, because there are bumps that he's moving throughout his stuff as well. And then we have very few intersections of these characters. It is basically like we have two films running in parallel. Every once in a while, they'll cross paths. We start with them. We end with them. There are very few scenes in the middle where we get these two characters running into each other. So I think that also really helps the pacing is that we basically have two films in one with this. One thing I definitely I want to mention as we're getting as we're starting to get into the meat of the film is how brilliant the introduction is. You know, you have these great sort of superimposition shots of Stockton, California, that just looks like just a the quickening age and decay of like you know a city. It's so weird because you think there's cities in Europe that are hundreds of years older than you know our entire country. So it's weird to see a modern city already just looking like it's on its last legs. And so you have that ambience and then you have like the Chris Christopherson song, Help Me Make It Through the Night. And it's, which is such a perfect, I mean, God, every, I mean, it's Chris Christopherson, you know, <laughs> he's so, he's so great. And hearing his voice with this movie just sets that kind of like that heart sick kind of weariness that I think just sort of permeates the entire film. Movies featuring Chris Christopherson songs is almost its own genre. I mean, they're in the 70s. Uh, you got Tulane Blacktop, the last movie, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, St. Jack, things like that. Uh, if Blade had actually had Chris Christopherson singing in it, I think, I think that could have taken Blade to the next level. But, uh, <laughs> uh I never really pegged myself as a Christofferson fan, but my God, has he come up just a ton on this podcast. I mean, we've talked about a lot of the movies that you just mentioned. You know, we talked about Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid just recently. We talked about the last movie. We've talked about Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. I mean, he has run a thread through this. And when you look at something like, you know, this year's big movie, the re-re-remake of A Star is Born, and it's like, yeah, it's it 
yeah, it's got Sam Elliott, but it's missing Chris Christopherson. And when you think about what a thread he wove through the entire decade of the 70s, it's really impressive. Now I really want to see Blade with Christopherson music. Maybe when they're in that vampire rave at the beginning, it's like a, a dubstep remix of uh, Help Me Make It Through the Night. Yes, more Christopherson, less Stephen Dorff. Were there any other authors that came up for you? Because like, to me, there were certain scenes that definitely made me think of Bukowski. All the drinking made me think of Bukowski. Well, then in the migrant scenes, because um, I know he wrote several short stories, some of which are in The Most Beautiful Girl in Town, where he talks about, you know, basically you know, having to do migrant work and just it was just sounded completely hellish because it's, I mean, it's backbreaking work, obviously. But also just the character of Oma, like Susan Tyrell's character definitely felt like a very like you could see her partying with Henry Chinaski pretty easily. I, I definitely saw, I, I mean, thought of uh, Bukowski and John Fonte, uh, Steinbeck, Jack Nicholson movie. Uh, yeah, William Kennedy. That's who I was thinking of. I definitely, definitely thought of, of those types of uh, characters. Yeah, I can really see the Steinbeck. I mean, when you're talking about the state of um, Stockton, California, Heather, I was thinking about the – now, I haven't read the book of this, but I've seen the movie of it several times. I don't know why, but Cannery Row and just the kind of desperation and the way that the city in Cannery Row was portrayed. And yeah, even though this is being set in late 60s, early 70s, I mean, this feels like – Hooverville. I mean, this feels like the depression is still very much in Stockton. It's a character in this movie in a way. It's just the ambiance of it, the vibe of it, the feel. And yeah, I mean, and Mike, I think that's such an astute point because, you know, it's the thing is like when when people are in kind of a destitute way of life and there's not a lot of jobs, these towns, you, you might as well still be in the 30s. You know, I mean, other cities may be thriving around you, but this town and these people are almost forgotten by the rest of the country. It's not the California that you usually see in film. When you think of California on film, you think either, you know, on the beach or you think of uh, glitzy urban lifestyle and, you know, in, in LA or, or San Francisco or, or the beach lifestyle of, you know, San Diego or something like that. But the kind of low rent, blue collar, sun faded, it almost looks like the town went up in decline. You know, it, it was just set up to never amount to much, but it, it's, it's kind of perfect for that. Like it looks pleasant. The, the weather is, is nice and, and things like that, but there's no, there's nowhere to go there. It's all dead ends, but, uh, you know, you got a bunch of people more or less content to be there. The one person who ties these two stories together is Nick Colasanto as Ruben, the boxing manager. And it's interesting to see his interactions with both of these guys, both Ernie and Tully. And Nick Colasanto, I really only knew him from Cheers from growing up on that show. So to see him show up in this, I was very surprised. And I know that he's had a really long career. He's been a director. He's done all this kind of stuff. But really, I only knew him as the one role. And to watch him in this, it is really, really nice. And he's one of the few characters, too, where we get him without the other characters. You know, we always see Oma, the um, Susan Tyrell character, we'll talk about her. We see her always in conjunction with Tully. We always see Faye in conjunction with Ernie. But Ruben actually gets 
moments alone with his wife and, you know, we get to hear some of his inner thoughts as he's talking about Ernie and we get to see him alone talking with, you know, other people, which is nice. So this really good third character that ties these stories together and we get to see him trying to be a good person, though there are weird moments where, and we're going to definitely talk about this as far as like race and class and these kind of things going on in here. And just to see the way that he favors Ernie being a white fighter versus uh, some of the black and Latino fighters that he works with is really kind of interesting. The way that he gives Ernie this new robe, the way that he uh, has him give his bloody trunks to one of the other boxers because, you know, hey, it's just a little bit of blood. Who cares about that? But he really prefers this white fighter and even says to his wife as she's trying to get some sleep, he's there kind of mulling these things over. And he's just like, well, I got nothing against the blacks, but people want to see a white fighter. We can definitely see the way that he prefers Ernie over these other guys. One thing about the bloody trunks, I loved how the guy was like, you know, there's blood on these. And he's like, it's not your blood. I don't know. When that came up in the movie, when he said that line, you know, I was a little taken aback. But also, I don't I'm sure boxing was very similar. I know with like wrestling, professional wrestling, the territory days, there were champions they, you know, that would kind of build up depending on the population in an area. Like if you've got a large Italian American population, you got Bruno San Martino. If you've got a larger like Puerto Rican population, you'd have a Puerto Rican fighter. And so I don't know if that was him. Part of me was almost like, is he, is he just trying to kind of like, cause he doesn't have Tolly anymore. He's trying to build up somebody that will be the champion for like, because I mean, he actually has them introduced already as Irish and Ernie's like, I'm not Irish. <laughs> and he's like, oh, whatever, go with it, kid, you know? And so I'm sort of like, there's an Irish American population, you know, it's, I mean, it seems, I know it sounds, I mean, in these days it does sound awful and it is awful. Like people should just be people. But back then, you know, it was just kind of like a business strategy, you know, I'm not trying to excuse old behaviors, but I guess trying to understand it. But I know what it, I mean, what do you guys think? Well, race definitely seemed to be on, on the minds with, I mean, Oma brings it up several times, you know, biracial relationship she's been in. It's funny. She goes, uh, she talks about how people just won't leave, uh, her and, uh, Earl alone and, and white men have unnatural desires. And then she, uh, you know, in the next breath, she's complaining about all the Mexicans in the place. And, um, it's, yeah, I, I don't know what to, what to make of it other than it's in the air. It's, it's something people are, are thinking about. Um, but it's, uh, I don't know that there's a particular statement or, uh, philosophy about it. There is still that kind of coding as far as language goes in different professions, you know, how they call Ernie and Irishmen just to make sure that people know that he's white. It, uh, amongst sex workers, I know that there are uh, a lot of people who will say that they're Italian or Irish just to say basically I'm not black or Puerto Rican or Latina, which is really interesting. Back when Backpage or Craigslist was on, you could look and search for things like Italian. Italian or Irish, and you would get the white service providers versus the people of color, which, so it's, it's still there. It's still very prevalent. You know, some people have their preferences and that's the way to code it. Jed, you refer to Oma, like she has that line that I absolutely love so much was they won't leave you alone in this world. And just the way that Susan, you know, delivers it. And it's just, you've, ah, you just feel like so much like gravity and just, yeah, we're just kind of 
just someone who's just been through some shit, you know, and God, she's, I love her anyway. Susan Tyrell's, I mean, these two, her and Stacey Keach, I think are two of the greatest American actors that have come out in the last like 40 years. And uh, both of them should be, you know, I mean, I know Susan sadly is no longer with us, but I mean, their names should be as huge, you know, in my opinion, as Streep and De Niro. The movie handles, I think, all of that so smartly because it's just, it's just kind of a reality. Like I grew up with people that would say they weren't racist, but then they'd complain about the Mexicans, and I, and I'd, I'd try to point that out. Like you realize that's still racism. <laughs> kind of a very vexing thing of, of our culture that sadly is still prevalent. Well, some people say I don't take drugs, and then they'll light up a cigarette. I don't take drugs. Nicotine's a drug. Caffeine's a drug. Speaking of cigarettes, that was watching it recently, and, and that opening scene of, of Tully trying to find a match for his cigarette while he's in his his motel room. Um, it just seems like a perfect metaphor for for the character that he's got this unlit cigarette. You know, this this stick that's just it's nothing but potential, but he needs a spark. He needs a flame held under it to you know get something out of it and he just looks around here he looks around there it's the only thing that gets him out of bed that gets him dressed gets him out of the hotel and then he's on the street and he just gives up and uh says "Ah, i might as well box since i'm up he just keeps doing that he keeps he's got this potential and that's all he's holding on to is is his potential i could be something i could have been something if i just get out and train and you know get my head straight and uh and eventually, you know, every once in a while, he gives up avoiding it and goes and trains. But, uh, yeah, that uh, at the end of the film, when uh, Jeff Bridges uh, runs into him, he's again, he's looking for a light. He's just kind of stumbling down the sidewalk, asking people, random strangers, if they got a light. And he's still this cigarette, you know, just potential, nothing to set it on fire. Man, that's a, that's a brilliant observation. There's so much smart little moves in this movie. Like one thing that I thought to me is almost like a theme is how you have a lot of scenes of people talking to each other, but not with each other. It's, it's almost like there's a lot of like, we're even when we're with people, we're still isolated. Cause there's, um, and some of that's comical. Like there's this great scene where Ruben's trying to tell the story to, uh, I believe it's babe played by our Aragon. Who's got, he's great too. And he was a former boxer professionally and this other guy and the uh, these other two guys are having this other conversation and you know and nick calisando keeps going like no wait you got it you gotta let me finish this story and then they just keep talking this other shit and they <laughs> and it's funny but but i feel like there's other scenes where it's just like people are talking but nobody's really truly listening like all the scenes with Faye and ernie there seems to be a lot of that. And then, of course, the, the ending, the end scene, which we'll get to here in a little bit, I feel like also had a lot of that. Well, yeah, you talked about how Nick Colasanto felt like he was, you know, coming out of a, a Cassavetes film. It felt like he wasn't an actor in here. And I really like how many non-actors they have in this movie, how many real boxers they have bringing that, both that world weariness of those faces, those beat up faces, and then also just some of those weird tics that they have, which is absolutely fascinating. And yeah, just Art Aragorn was one of those guys, or Art Aragorn was one of those guys who's, yeah, he'd been in a ton of stuff, but yeah, he still carried that, that boxing stuff on his face. Oh yeah. That scene with 
with Art and uh, and Colasanto uh, talking about uh, you know basically kids these days. Oh, you know he got discouraged when he got knocked out in thirty seconds. Yeah, I thought it was bad when the first time I passed blood. Yeah, I thought it was bad when you know I crippled this part of my body or you know had this terrible scarring. Yeah, it wasn't really bad till I got my throat crushed and you know they <laughs> they just keep talking about kids these days uh uh all they want to do is watch movies even earl the guy that played susan tyrell oma's former flame who ends up coming back in the film earl curtis Cox, as far as i know he's also a boxer and he's playing a non-boxing role he really has nothing to do with the boxing world in the film but that's his background and for a non-actor again that scene with him and Keach where he takes the shirt off and is giving it back to, to Tully, that is one of my favorite moments in the film. Oh, Without same. a doubt, probably my favorite performance in the whole film is Curtis Cokes. And I looked him up. I thought, I got to see more movies with this guy. And there aren't any. He's, that was it. And I couldn't believe he held his own and even outshone so many performers. And, you know, his little moments, uh, he was so naturally great. I really wish he'd done more. Yeah, the Oma character, her scenes with Keech, with Tully, are just, man, it's just an acting class right there, and writing, and directing, and just seeing the way that these play out. I mean, especially the scene where Tully is cooking for her. My God, the way that she turns and will go back on herself and then come back this way. I mean, just all of those moments... It's just wonderful, and it just feels like it feels like it is completely unscripted. But then you go back to the book, and you go back to the script, and no, it's all right there. And just the way that they bring that naturalism to these roles is just wonderful. Tyrell, I mean, she was an actress that just just her very presence would just dominate, you know. Like, but Keach, she never dominates Keach, you know. And and that's they're they're complete equals, and it's so perfect. And her Oma is, you know, such a complicated and just riveting character because Oma is. There's a sadness to Oma. There's a humor. There's kind of a saltiness that I really, really loved. Like there's t- there so many times where I was like, man, she is a hot mess, but I love this woman. She is amazing. <laughs> but then at the same time, it's like, you know, there's clearly like some mental illness, but I mean, you're talking an era. Well, I say back then, I mean, even now, I mean, if you're somebody who is poor and you don't have insurance and you haven't been diagnosed by a professional, I mean, you know, turning to things like booze or drugs, I mean, you're, you're self-medicating. So you just get the, you know, people end up becoming kind of lost souls because they're not really getting the help they need. And I, I, I definitely got a lot of that from Oma. I mean, Tolly's, I think, a bit of a lost soul, too. I mean, because at one point, I think when he's talking with one of the, the older guys that's a migrant worker and just they're like, what is a young guy like you? And yeah, totally just makes an allusion to how he, he's never found work that he really truly loves yet. And I mean, cause that's yeah. the thing, even boxing, boxing was a way out, but you realize boxing, it's not like some people go into sports cause they love them and they're passionate. That is their heart and soul. And then some people, it's like, you're poor, you're this poor kid, and this is maybe your one ticket to, of course, a titular fat city, which which is another brilliant stroke because, you know, there's no fat city in fat city. Nobody's having a fat city <laughs> in fat city, which is pretty bleak. You know, sometimes so is life. Yeah, always a, a character who uh, you look at her, you know, she's not particularly 
if you said, you know, describe an attractive woman or something like that, she's not she's not the first person who would leap to your mind generally, but you can see what's attractive to her about her to these other guys. Um uh she's so wounded and raw and sweet sometimes. Uh, she just you want to take care of her, but it, you know she, she she brings up your your best impulses, but then she brings out your worst ones just as quickly. And you know, and, and she almost seems to to play you that way, like oh, I'm affecting you this way. I'm gonna I'm gonna go the other way now. Uh, just to you know, like that's that's kind of in a way she and Tully are similar in that that's the only trick she's got is kind of flipping flipping the script and you know controlling you know not not the outcome but just just imposing some measure of control by i can make you crazy or i can make you sorry for me or i can make you this and and totally he's going through his life where the only thing he's got is his capacity for physical abuse you know when he he, he can box you know he's not really a great boxer but he can take a lot of punches and then still deliver uh you know if he can get in there with one good kapow he he can he can uh, win a fight but uh you know he he doesn't really move great and he doesn't want to train he doesn't all these other things and even with uh with Oma when he wants to uh, prove a point to her you know his, the the only thing that really speaks to her is when he puts his head through the um through the jukebox, you know, <laughs> like I can't argue with you. All I can do is hurt myself and to, you know, to make a point. And, uh, so there are these two folks who've only got one skill that, uh, they've learned they have and, and they just, they use it for everything and they don't get very far, but it's, it's their one, one thing they keep going back to. I don't know if it was Tyrell's choice or the uh, whose choice it was, but when she is sitting in, I think it's one of the bars. I mean, this movie is just rife with bars. And she's got that polka dot dress on. Kind of reminds me of Minnie Mouse for whatever reason. And it's undone in the back. It just It's such a nice touch that she couldn't even either she couldn't do up her own dress or she couldn't find anybody to do it up for her and that she's just fine with it being open in the back and unzipped i was like that's such a nice little touch and just really describes her character very well the other little detail i I loved about that dress is that she has this red like brooch and it's like pinned like right in the middle of the dress (laughs) like it's not pinned where a brooch would normally be and it's sort of but there's like some sort of that's this weird kind of beauty and kind of complication of, of Oma's, you know, I mean, she's she's still trying, you know, she's still trying to to look good. And, you know, and I always thought Susan Tyrell, I mean, she has such a great expressive face. I always thought she looks kind of like a like a, one of the women from Tamara Limpeka's paintings, the painter from the 20s. But she's kind of like a discarded goddess here, you know. <laughs> But, but the the thing about the dress I thought was really sweet, and um and according to one of the extras on the Indicator Blu-ray release of Fat City, when her, when her and Tolly are about to walk out of the bar together, like you see him kind of sweetly like just zip up uh, the that back of her dress, and apparently Keach just did that like on the fly, which all the more reason to love Stacy Keach. Does it, is it me or does Stacy Keach have less hair in? 
what, 71 than he did in 81. I mean, uh, I just watched, uh, you know, I saw Long Riders and um, uh, Butterfly and a couple other Stacey Keach movies recently later. And I was like, God, he's got more hair now than he did. But it, I mean, he still has got that sort of receding hair. But do you know, did he do anything to, to make it look, uh, did he get plugs or did he, uh, did he, um, thin his hair for this film? Cause it, it looks a lot more receded and, and thinned out than it did 10 years later. I didn't have the balls to ask him, but I totally agree that he really has almost like a comb over thing going on the front. I mean, it is really super thin up top. It makes him look even more worn out. Yeah, that's the thing that impressed me was that, you know, because I remember, Mike, I think last year uh, you and I and Sam talked about the ninth configuration, which was a few years after Fat City, obviously, like quite a few years. And he looked younger in the ninth configuration than he did in Fat City. And it's not because of the hair. It's just the way, you know, his gait, you know, he's one of those guys you just look at, you can look in Tully's face and his eyes and you can just sense this complete just you know he's got this fighting spirit but the spirit's been crushed a lot and it's there's a lot of quit too you know it's i don't know so brilliant it's such a such a smart performance he carries around so many grudges you know and everybody seems to have a lot of grudges in this i mean uh the way that ruben talks about his 20 dollars, and it's such a big deal when uh tolly pays him back his 20 bucks but then Tully has this whole thing about Ruben sending him down to Panama and the way that he got cut in this fight in Panama, and he brings that up, or he talks a little bit about his ex-wife a few times, so he's carrying that around, too. So it's it's really interesting that he has a whole backstory before we ever meet this guy. Um, so, you know, in typical fashion of 2018, I think there should be a prequel where we get to see young Tully and the way that he makes, you know, the, the, the droids and all these things that will come back later in the post Fat City world. That would be interesting because, uh, it, it'd almost be like, um, oh, what was the sequel to Henry Fool? Um, Faye Grimm, when you watch Henry Fool, you think, oh, he's, He's just, he's totally full of shit and things like that. But then Faye Grimm comes out in the several years later and the whole conceit is that, no, he was telling the truth. He's really, you know, a spy and he's, uh, <laughs> he, he, all these grandiose, uh, uh, pictures he paints of himself. Oh, no, they're, they're pretty much true. Because I think that, that the guys in Fat City, the, the male characters, their, their energy and their passion really goes into, excuses for their lives uh that they tirelessly throw at each other they they all have it's it seems like it's more important for them to have a, a good logical reason why they aren't more successful than it is for them to actually do much about it you know uh the the trainer wants to uh, you know he's he's got the, these these young guys and you know he's got these good-looking white guys uh, that they could really be something if they just listen to what he has to say, but they won't listen to what he has to say. You know, what can you do? They, 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 you lose them this way or that way. And, and Tully's got his, uh, you know, you didn't go to Panama with me and I got cut and she, you know, and that was it. And then my wife left me and, uh, and, you know, Ernie's got the, his marriage, uh, now, you know, he, it's, it's almost like they're, they're looking for, reasons to give up 
as long as they've got a good a good reason that they can they can talk about the rest of their lives why they didn't amount to anything they're that's really what they're looking for more than they're looking for fat city uh they're looking for a good reason why they didn't ever get there and they also seem to be more concerned way more concerned with uh how they're you know how they appear to other men you know the esteem or acceptance of other men is is much more important to them than love you know than than the women in their life than success than uh, they're always performing for each other uh and it's it's usually these battling excuses yeah, the whole Ernie and Faye relationship, I mean, that is very interesting to see, you know, because Ernie, there's an, uh, a scene that was cut out um, that was in the script and in the book, I believe, which was Ernie and the two other boxers going to visit a whorehouse. And pretty much we learn that Ernie is very inexperienced, that this is his first time um, having sex. He doesn't actually have sex with the prostitute. He ends up uh, premature ejaculating when she's uh, kind of cleaning up his junk. So the the time that we see with Faye is the first time that he's ever had. And then he just kind of falls into this whole thing of you know, she starts to play on him and play on his weaknesses and some of these kind of things. And it's like we get to see what Tully probably went through however many, probably 12 years beforehand, get to see that thing play out. And then she, I hate to use this word, but she traps him, quote unquote, with a kid later on. So, you know, pulling him out of the boxing world. So, you know, to your point that he will always walk around saying, I could have been this, I could have done that. But no, instead, I had to go out and do migrant work, just the same thing as Tully. So when that those paths cross again, you're just like, yep, you are at the exact same moment now with Tully. We're out there picking walnuts, and you got a kid on the way, and your boxing career is pretty much done. You know, it's it's just uh, like we're getting to see that prequel along with the movie itself. God, that scene with Faye, I kept like, I actually, it was almost like watching a horror movie where I'm like, Ernie, run! Like, don't. <laughs> and poor Candy, Candy Clark, like, for some reason in the 70s, it's just every film I see from the 70s with Candy Clark, her character annoys the living piss out of me. Like, I'm like, oh God, like, I can't. And she's lovely. She seems like, and every she seems lovely. I'm actually fine with seeing her pop up and stuff in the eighties, but for, for some reason her characters in the seventies and Faye is definitely on this list. Just, Oh my God. I'm just like, Oh, you just be quiet. Go back to Oma. You know, <laughs> Ernie is pretty much everybody's relationship to Ernie is the same. Um, that, you know, Tully isn't particularly interested in him at the beginning until you know, he, he kind of feels him out. He says, you know, have you ever been in the ring? Have you ever done this? And when he finds out that the kid doesn't know anything about boxing, that's when he says, okay, I'm going to use this kid to, you know, he will think I know everything and I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to kind of get some fulfillment for myself out of this kid looking to me like, like I'm the expert. And the, the coach you know, the trainer does the same thing with him. He's like, uh, you know, I've got all the answers. You, you know, you, you listen to me, you'll go places. And, and, you know, uh, Faye, Faye does the same thing. She, you know, he's, he's, uh, she's 
maybe naive too, but you know, she's, uh, she sees in him, you know, a way to, to kind of make herself feel, uh, fulfilled and, and, uh, everybody is, is kind of, you know, who knows if he hadn't run into Tully that day, would he ever have boxed? Uh, is he really that good? Is he really, you know, is he just, he's just kind of a blank canvas. Again, the unlit cigarette, he's this potential that, uh, everybody sort of latches onto with Tully wants to be admired. The trainer wants to, you know, again, feel like somebody's listening to him and, and, uh, really hanging on his every word. And, and Faye wants, uh, Faye wants the security of, uh, you know, somebody out providing for her and, and she's trying to lock that down. So, you know, who knows what he would have been had he never run into Tully that morning. Yeah, I think fulfilled's the perfect word to use here, too, because that's, that's actually, you know, the thing Ernie, you know, when we see, like, the second scene of him in the car, we're basically, you know, she kind of, you know, needles him into, you know, kind of proposing too, but he, at first she's just kind of listless and he's like, I know what it is, you're not fulfilled, and I didn't fulfill you, you know, and it's, um, like, you, like, like anybody can even know the definition of fulfillment at 18, right, but <laughs> but, but that is, like, that's such a good point, it's, you know, nobody's really fulfilled here. I don't think we get any sort of insight to anybody's, like, childhood, I mean, because even like with, I mean, because Faye, you kind of think is probably under 18, but she's close in age to Ernie because there's this whole illusion of her still being in school. But it's it's almost like everybody just kind of was hatched out. I mean, unless I'm missing something, you don't really get any insight into anybody's background before adulthood. I mean, yeah, other than the like 15. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because even the 15 year old, because there's and I love this kid so much because you see one of one of Ruben's boxers is this 15 year old kid. And this kid, you know, so amazing because he's trying to psych Ernie up and he's like, you know, you go out then you kick ass, you know, you know, you got to get you got to want to kick ass. It's not about just this. He's giving he's just pumping up this kid who's like such a such a badass. But then you're like, God, he's a baby. You know, he's like 15 and he has a baby face. Life's pretty bad. I mean, 15, you should be in school, not having to, you know, get the shit beat out of you for a living. Yeah, and we don't really see Ernie win too many fights, if memory serves. I want to say that he wins maybe one of them. The first fight we see is when he allegedly gets headbutted, but there's another fight that we see where he just gets knocked out cold. Yeah, those are the only two on-screen fights, but they are, it is alleged... Because when he's uh, when the trainer's buying the uh, the robe for him, they says he he's won three his last three fights he's won so so he has won a few apparently but there are no victories on screen. Even when uh, Tully runs into Ernie at the end, he's just like, "Yeah, you only win by decisions," which is funny because the time that we see Tully win, he wins a te- technical knockout uh, against Lucero. One of the things that was in the script that I'm not sure if it's good or bad that they ended up cutting it, but Lucero, in the script at least, when he comes into town, he tells the promoter, cancel the fight. I have the clap really bad and I can't, you know, I can't fight. And then when he's there boxing with Tully, he's telling him, listen, I've got the clap. I'll let you win. Let's put on a good show. And Tully's just like, you know, fuck you, you know, and goes after the guy. And then Lucero goes after him and et cetera, et cetera. And then after the fight, 
uh, Lucero comes in and he's just groaning. He can barely walk because he's got the clap so bad. And Tully's like, oh shit, you weren't kidding around. I thought that was just a ploy. And <laughs> so the one fight that we see him win, basically he didn't have to do anything to win that fight because the guy was hurting so bad. Oh man, that's interesting. I actually wish that detail would have made it because it's so, you can tell that he's obviously not in a good way. And, you know, at one point we see him alone in, you know, his little room, you know, and he's taking a pill and then he's, he pisses blood. And so, but that could be a lot of things. <laughs> I didn't know if he had cancer or what, you know, <laughs> I mean. But- well, you get enough shots to the kidneys too and you're going to piss blood. I thought the whole introduction of Lucero, I thought it was interesting, though, to kind of give a contrast, because Ruben, Ruben as a whole seems like a guy who does care. Like, he doesn't seem like a total shark or anything. I mean, he seems like somebody who's, who's trying, he tries to do the right thing um, as much as you can, I guess, in that life. You know, but you don't, you don't see Lucero just shows up to town by himself. And when he's in the room getting ready and the doctor's asking the two gentlemen with him, like, is he okay? Can he do this? You know, is he in shape to wrestle? And they're just like, oh, yeah, he's great. And it's like, and you're like, are you, dude? <laughs> you know, and it's like, you realize, like, man, nobody's looking out for Lucero. He also seems much more professional than Tully does. And I don't, I don't know if that's just the way he carries himself. He looks very, you know, he arrives alone, but he doesn't look lost. You know, he's, uh, he's put together. He's wearing a suit. It's the tie is knotted. He, uh, he comes out. Of the, uh, God, that, that scene where he comes out after losing and he's walking all by himself. There's nobody with him. The lights are turning out before he can even get out the door. And, uh, but he looks, he looks put together. You know, he's, he's hurting and things like that, but he just looks like much more a consummate professional than, uh, than Tully does. And, and again, I don't know. Is that me reading, uh, something into it that wasn't, uh, wasn't intended uh or did they just perfectly communicate that uh but yeah that it seems like a he's in it for the long like he's got a career here uh you know even if he's in bad shape uh, you know maybe he's uh making the best calls he can for the uh you know what he's got left of his career but uh he seems like a professional to me totally seems like you know he's kind of propped up by the promoters and and he's going to flake out which he does Ruben's really trying to look out for him. He talks him out of, you know, get get away from Oma. Let's get you over here. You know, you can stay with me. We'll find a place for you. Pays for him to do all this stuff. And then Tully just loses his shit when Ruben gives him his cut of the purse and it's only a hundred bucks. And he's like, I got beat up for this, you know? And it's like, yeah, you know, I, I was spotting you for all of these other things. So no wonder your cut of the purse is very small you know, because you basically you have to pay Ruben back for all this, this stuff that he's done. He's not going to do it out of the goodness of his own heart, even though he is doing it for the right reasons. And then, yeah, uh, Tully's just looking for any excuse now to crawl back into a bottle and get back to where he was at the beginning, beginning of the film. He doesn't seem to really want the help. Just the look on his face when he, when he's declared the winner, because, you know, in a, in a typical Hollywood film, this would be like, this would be like some cheesy, like, yes, he's back. And it'd be glorious. It'd be like, you know, it's like, oh, he's like Rocky Balboa. Look at him. Like, he's overcome. And instead, Tully just looks, he looks wrecked. And he looks lost. 
And it's, you know, and what I kind of took from that was just like maybe the realization of like, you built yourself up for something that you're like, this is going to be the thing that's going to get me back and it's going to fulfill me. Again, going back to the fulfillment thing. And then when you realize it's not that easy, you know, and, and something is, you know, as enriching, but occasionally complicated as feeling fulfilled, it, you know, it's not going to come with just a victory that you don't have a heart into. Again, this isn't his passion, but he doesn't even know what his passion is. What do you do when you're a lost soul? You know, it's uh, the spirit's good, but the soul's lost. So, and then I think, you know, to me, like getting the money, Mike, you nailed it. I think he was looking for an out. I think also maybe there was that realization of like, I mean, boxers, I mean, God, that is one of the roughest, I think, of sports to put your body through. And, you know, we were talking a lot of concussions, a lot of CTE. Of course, they didn't really have that, I think, defined back then. And all this year, like, wow, you know, I put myself through complete physical hell for just a bit of scratch. You know, it's, and I mean, as you get older, I mean, you're going to feel that you can kind of roll with that at 20 when you're almost 30, which is still crazy young, but man, it's, you know, it's hard. I do want to talk about the ending of this film and that moment when you can't really say the world stops, but a lot of stuff does stop. I mean, because we start off pretty much the whole film with Ernie and Tully, meaning there is that preamble that you're talking about, Jed, where uh, Tully's looking for the, the match for the cigarette. But pretty much the, the action starts when Tully goes to the gym and he meets Ernie, and then they cross paths again at the end of the film. Now they've, they've crossed paths before, like I said, they are picking walnuts together and those kind of things. But, um, we have this moment where they go to this diner and I love the way that they're sat on these, uh, diner stools and looking at us rather than, uh, looking at each other. They don't really seem to turn and, and talk to one another. They're again, I, I can't remember who said it, Jed or Heather, but you're just talking to be heard rather than, uh, to, to actually speak to another person. And that's kind of the way that they are. And that conversation is amazing, but there's one moment in there where they turn around and just everything kind of stops and it's not a freeze frame. It's just the world has a moment of pause. There's like a breath before everything goes back on. And I love that moment. And it, and then it's very, very soon thereafter that the movie just ends and we go back to that Christopherson song and that's it. And that, you know, we have that, like I said, we have, the breath that happens with the the pause there, and then the end, for whatever reason, it hits you in a way that, for me, it takes my breath away, because it's just like, wow, that's how they're going to end this thing. Yeah, they're looking at the looking at the guy working at the diner, thinking, you know, mocking him. Like, can you imagine being that guy? You know, how, right. what, how pathetic. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I think Tully knows. He knows. He is that guy, and he's going to be that guy. And, yeah, it's it's pretty devastating. He should be so lucky to be that guy. I know. I feel bad for that dude. I'm like, this 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 guy's ancient. He's running a diner. I mean, he's doing he's doing better than some. That's that's for sure. He's got a smile on his face. <laughs> but maybe that... Maybe he's happy. But maybe that, that's the kind of thing, though, like, that's part of our uh, human nature that's not one of the prettier parts is that... You know, if you're, if you're hurt inside, 
if you're damaged inside, it's, it's sometimes it's kind of like this reflexive action to try and find somebody or, you know, find a group or whatever that you are like, well, at least I'm not that guy, or at least I'm not that group of people or whatever. And I mean, which is a shitty thing to do and you shouldn't do it, but you know, when you're kind of on the skids, like Tully is, you know, it's, you're just grasping probably at whatever, you know, you can, you can get your mitts on to kind of boost you up. And yeah, just, I love the last, that last shot where after you have that pause, which is so brilliant, that totally made me do a pause. Like, I think I rewound that several times of like, okay, wait, <laughs> like what's, and, but it's such a cool move. And then, you know, Tully's just like, no, don't, don't leave. Let's talk some more. And Ernie's like, okay, but then he doesn't talk to him. Like he doesn't, <laughs> he just doesn't, it's like, no, you know, of course you don't want to be alone, but it's like we we're in a world where people don't know how to truly connect in any sort of real deep way. I thought it's a little bit about the way that Ruben favors uh, the white guy over the black guy and the Latino guy, you know, migrant work is typically seen as being something done by the quote unquote underclass. So we see a lot of Latinos and African Americans out in the field for this. And so it's very demeaning. And I put that in, you know, italics. It's demeaning for Tully to and for Ernie to do, uh, this migrant work of picking, you know, the, the onions and the walnuts and all these kind of things. And at the very end of the film, I think, and I could be wrong, but I think that that is one of the only Asians that we see in the whole movie. And it's like, oh, well, at least I'm not that guy. You know, we've already knocked down <laughs> the the blacks, the, the Mexicans, all this, but at least I'm not Chinese. Thank God. When they're out doing the migrant work, too, I love the observation Tully makes, you know, to uh, to Ernie, to make him sound, you know, like he's got a plan. He's like, you probably think I'm crazy out here doing this, but you know, for this is almost as good as uh, road work for getting yourself in shape. And um, but the the earlier scene, the first migrant work scene, when he gets on the bus and the guy's like, "Young guy like you ought to have a proper job," and he's like, "I did. I got fired. You know, I was a fry cook. And I got fired." And that's the reason he's there. Is you know, but but to posture to Ernie that uh, he's. He's really he's on the ball. He's he's uh he's got a strategy and that's why he's out here. Um because he's he's really training right now. <laughs> he's like goddamn uh war notes in Tulane Blacktop where it's just like he's always got a story for something, you know, and he's always got the plan. He's 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 the guy that you should really listen to and trust. That's the main thing he wants out of life is to be to be listened to, to be taken seriously for people to think of him as something special that, you know, the rest of the world doesn't see because, because he got cut in Panama because whatever, you know, when his main problem is, is himself, he doesn't want to, you know, even when he does make up his mind, cause he can't find a light for his cigarette. He does go, yeah, what the hell? I might as well go train. When he gets to the gym, he does a minute of, he jumps, jumps rope for about, 20 seconds and he does you know some phantom punches for he's like yeah i'm good let's get to it and then 10 seconds into sparring with jeff bridges he says oh i pulled a muscle you know and that's his excuse now is i've pulled a muscle and it's well because you didn't you didn't warm up you didn't do the work <laughs> you got no discipline or or you know your character uh is he's the one who's soft 
he tells Jeff Bridges late in the film, like, I saw you and you were, I said to myself, that guy's soft in the middle, but no, it, it's you, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, rather than like a get rich quick scheme, he's more like a get famous quick scheme, even though it's not even like, I don't think he wants fame. I don't think he wants overabundance of riches. I think to your point, he kind of wants to be listened to and he wants a little bit of respect, but he doesn't do anything to actually earn anyone's respect. I'd like to point out, too, that if this were any other boxing movie uh, that that held to uh, what we expect from boxing movies, which is, you know, usually about men or or women who are driven and they're desperate and they're going to work hard to achieve, you know, this this is this hard life, this punishing sort of uh, spectacle that they put themselves through is their ticket that they're really holding on to. We'd have a training montage somewhere. We'd have no training montage in here. There's no training. It's just, you know, I'm going to pick, I'm going to pick, uh, nuts and that's my training or, you know, uh, I'm going to put my head through this, uh, jukebox because physical abuse is, is what it's all about. Right. And, uh, yeah, that's all there is. All right. We're going to take a break and play an interview with Tully himself, Mr. Stacy Keach. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Well, Eric, would you say that we're just two dudes who love talking about movies over at the Culture Cast? I mean, yeah, I don't know if dudes is the correct nomenclature, though. <laughs> dudes, bros. Okay, what about movie nerds? No, okay, uh, dudes is fine. Not nerds. Anything but movie nerds. Well, over here at the Culture Cast, we talk about new movies, overlooked gems, classics, and some films that cause us to question our sanity twice a week. Yeah, Hot to Trot comes to mind for sure. Yeah, Hot to Trot was a real mess. So make sure to check out the Culture Cast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. 
Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. You like classic movies? How about classic TV? Over at Forgotten TV, I've covered everything from obscure Saturday morning TV to short-lived shows like Otherworld, The Phoenix, The Highwayman, and Cliffhangers. You can find the show over at Forgotten.tv or at all the usual podcast places. I hope you'll join me soon at Forgotten TV. How did you get approached to be Tully in Fat City? It was an amazing set of circumstances, starting with a phone call from my agent saying that John Houston and Ray Stark were interested in you to play this boxer in this movie, Fat City. And I wasn't sure about it, nor was my agent at that time, because we were sort of, I was waiting to see if, you know, what was going to happen in my career. The thing is, uh, I was doing Doc, and I was shooting Doc, and we were in Madrid, in Spain. And I got a phone call saying that John Houston was going to be arriving on the set to discuss that city with me the following day. Apparently, John had been shooting in Spain or shooting in Europe as well, on a movie that I, I think he was either he, he let go, I'm not sure it was a movie with George C. Scott. And I know something went awry with that movie. But nevertheless, John Houston arrived on the set of Doc and everybody was in awe. I mean, he was, you know, my God, and I, and I was the hero of the, of, the, of the hour, for sure. I mean, you know, suddenly John Houston came to see me, you know, to try and convince me or to talk to me about that soon. Well, after that meeting, I mean, it was no question I was going to do it. I mean, that was just, that was it. That was my first experience with John Hughes, which was extraordinary, extraordinary. And from that point until the time that we actually began filming, there were a lot of things that happened. I, I, first of all, I had to get in shape. I had to get trained. I was living in New York at the time, and I was assigned Jose Torres as my trainer. And Jose had been one of the light heavyweight, light heavyweight, light heavyweight champion. Had the fastest combination of any, apparently, timed him. And he was like a flurry. He could, he could throw the fastest combination of anybody around. And he trained me. He trained me not only in New York, but also came out to California and continued to train me. And we also, we began to get used to the idea of what it was like to be a boxer. Now, I had boxed very, I, I boxed a little bit when I was a kid and, uh, you know, but in high school, but uh, I didn't like getting hit. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't pursue it. It was not one of my favorite things, but Jose Torres was great. I mean, he really made me feel comfortable, not only in terms of the training, but also in terms of you know what it was like to get hit and what boxers went through. I mean, I will say this: my respect for fighters went up a million percent after that. I mean, it is probably the hardest work in the world. Getting, you know, to train to box is just extraordinary. What you, it's very rigorous. I played football. I played a lot of sports. I played baseball and I ran track, so I knew about athletics. But boxing, different. The stamina required and the mental. 
the mental stamina is, is, is really in another dimension. So we trained, and Al Silvani, who had played the referee in the movie, was going to be our choreographer. He was going to stage the, the fights. And we couldn't really do that without the other fighters, but he began to teach me sort of the ropes about how to move in the ring, how to bob and weave. And he and Jose were very instrumental in that. Interestingly enough, at the time while I was doing this, I was in New York, I was doing a play, I was doing Long Day's Journey in Tonight with Robert Ryan, who had done a boxing movie himself called The Setup. And he knew I was going to do that city and he was going to play a boxer. So he started to give me tips about how to move my shoulders and see what it looked good in the camera. And he started doing these wonderful moves. It was so great to watch him. Because that was an extraordinary movie. He was great in that movie. I love that movie, too. It's a great movie, a great boxing movie. So I had some great influence from Robert Ryan, Jose Torres, and Al Silvani before I ever got in front of the camera. We then went out to Stockton, California. I met Conrad Hall. And I remember the first day we shot, we, uh, or the first day of shooting, he got in the back of a of a, he, was, he wanted to expose and show the, the environment of Stockton, California, the homeless people. And that was the first thing. That was the first thing we shot. I was curious about the the order that you shot it in, because so much of of Tully's journey is going from more of an out of shape boxer to somebody who's you know climbing back up to that that pinnacle again. What order did you shoot it in? Um, did you have to do much physical changes as you were going through that? Not really. It was really, again, it was a lot of pre-production time where I had to get in shape. I really had to get, you know, I, was, I wasn't in bad shape, but I wasn't in, after that, after Fat City, I was in the best shape of my life. There was no question about it. I mean, that, uh, I was in terrific shape physically. But no, there was nothing, no, no, it was not like a raging bull kind of thing, you know, no, no, quite, you know, they, you know, they probably did. Sixto Rodriguez was my opponent, who was a wonderful man, and you know, a light heavyweight. He'd had 87 professional fights. He never had a shot at the title, but he was, he had arms like steel, and he was the sweetest guy in the world, too. And I remember after we had staged the fight, the big fight scene, John came up and said, all right, boys, you, we, we, we've done the choreography. Now just get out there and box. Just get out there and fight. <laughs> and I mean, without any, you know, just go. And, and then Sixer would do, he came to me and said, Stacey, you can hit me as hard as you want to, man. Just don't worry about it. Just hit me. You know, and, well, I hit him uh, in the stomach and he, it's just a natural reaction. He reacted to, to my hitting him. He came out with a, a right that knocked me cold, knocked me right out. And that's the shot they use in the movie. Yeah, it was a great experience, though, I must say. And working with Jeff Bridges was extraordinary. I mean, even as a young actor, you knew he was going to be a big star someday. I mean, he's just, he had tremendous charisma and quality. I learned a lot from him, just watching him and his naturalness and his ability to just to convey an emotion with just a look. You know, it's it's terrific. You became good friends. You spent a lot of time uh, working with Susan Tyrell in that film, and I was curious how it was working with her. 
Wonderful, wonderful. Oh, I miss her so much every day. She was such a delight. I mean, I did a couple movies with Susie. The great thing about her, she was a stage actress, and she was she was very much like that character Uma, very much like that character. She was that was her in a lot of ways. I mean, she wasn't she was projecting this fear something very deep inside herself. She was uh, wonderful to work with. Great. And John and Conrad Hall would come in and we, some of the scenes we would stage in her apartment, he would tell us, he would tell us, you're the actor, you go out there, you you show, find out what you feel comfortable with and how you would how you would move in this scene, and then we'll come in and take a look at it. He let the actors stage the scene. He let us stage the scene. He came in with Conrad Hall afterwards and looked at it. He made some changes. He said, okay, good. Move over here instead of move there. But I mean, it, it, it was very organic. And that's, I think, is conveyed also when you see the film. It really feels very natural, very real. The dropping of the ketchup bottle on the, uh, in, in that scene, that was an accident. That, didn't, that wasn't planned. That it just happened. And we took advantage of it and shot it. Working with, with, with this master, with a master, he, he had some extraordinary quirks that were so eccentricities, I call them. For example, in the very final scene, when you see Jeff and myself sitting at the counter and this old Chinese gentleman is serving us, and we look around, and Tully looks over his shoulder and he sees these guys playing cards, and then he just, there's a freeze. And John said, he, I remember the night he gave this phrase. I said, all right, I want everybody, when I say freeze, just stop doing what you're doing and just freeze. And you know it's not a freeze frame because you can see the smoke drifting through the scene in the background. It was like time stopped for a minute. And I asked John, I said, how did you come up with that idea? And he said, it just came to me, son. Sometimes you just get a hair up your ass and you do what you want. (laughs) Yeah, it was just, it was totally intuitive. Well, that's why he was brilliant, man. I mean, he, he had moments like that a lot. But then there, there were other moments. There were other moments that were difficult. For example, the day we were shooting the scene with the pickers out in the field, I wasn't sure where to put the camera for the arrival of the bus with the migrant workers on them. And we started from there. We walked out with the camera into the middle of the field. Put the camera there and said, no, I don't. I didn't like it. They moved from one corner, then moved to the other corner. They moved all around this field all morning long trying to find the right place to make the shot. And he and Connie were, were in, in sync because they were they both, they, 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 uh, they, they, they weren't sure where to, where to put the camera. And then finally, after lunch, they went back to the beginning and put the camera back where they started. It was, it was one of those, you know, it's quirky. I had read that uh, there were some pretty big cuts made to the movie before it came out. Yes. To my um, great disappointment, uh, we had shot a whole sequence of events toward the end of the movie, particularly, uh, where after Charlie has lost his fight, he comes home, he's kicked out of his home, kicked out of his, uh, Susan Terrell says she's with another guy, by the way, played by Curtis Cox, who's a wonderful box to himself. After that, there was a scene that was shot where Tully goes out into the rain and he's in he's, he's drenched and he's soaked and he's in he's in this alley and he 
crawls into a cardboard box, just kind of a homeless situation. And it was also in a in an alcove, a store alcove, where a guy comes up and tries to knife him. There was a series of events of his downhill slide that were cut. Also, there was a, a shot of him when he was at his peak, when he was this, when he was a champion. And it was a flashback when he was in the ring and, and dazed from a, a blow from Luciano. He, he remembers when he was in the ring with his, you know, when he was the champion and being introduced to with his beautiful girlfriend. That was cut. And John was not happy about it. These cuts were not made by John. They were made by the studio. And I asked the star, I said, why did they cut these scenes, particularly the end? He said, because they thought that it was too depressing. It took the movie too far down. I said, well, isn't that the point? I mean, this guy goes to the absolute rock bottom. I mean, he goes, he's got absolute, and the lower it gets, the better. I mean, as far as the movie is concerned, the story is concerned. And Leonard Gardner agreed. Leonard Gardner felt the same way. This was a studio decision. They thought they were, you know, going to make it look less depressing. Well, it hurt the movie, I think. And uh, again, missing that the scene where you saw Tully in in grander days and in happier days, brighter days. So those scenes were shot, and they probably exist somewhere in some laboratory or some. Vault, who knows? Did you get to spend much time with Leonard Gardner? No, did not. Didn't in the beginning he was uh, he was uh, he was around quite a bit, but he was on um, you know he was he was not happy with uh, I mean certain things. I uh, I think he was ultimately I mean you know when the movie came out, but I know that well I mean, it's difficult for a writer who's you know he's, he's, he's he sees he had a vision of this work a certain vision that he wrote and. Uh, Apparently that vision was in conflict with certain things that were being shot the way they were shot. That's why I, I came to understand that he, he, you know, but I think ultimately he, he was very pleased and very proud of the film. Can you tell me the relationship that you and Houston had around backgammon? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, well, we, you know, he taught me how to play backgammon. And we used to play backgammon between takes. And he loved the game. He just loved the game. And and Ray Stark came by the set one day and saw John playing backgammon. He came and said, John, we're behind schedule. You've got to give me the backgammon board. He said, Ray, there's nothing you do with the time. they got to set up the shot. And while they're setting up the shot, I'm just relaxing a little bit. He said, give me the backgammon board, John. He said, well, I'm not going to give it to you, Joe Ray. And they were like children, you know, talking back and forth with the backgammon board. John gave it up. And Ray said, you, said you, you get back on schedule, I'll give you back the board. Well, it was about a week. But, but uh, no, it's... Uh, you know, John, and I did another movie with John. I did two more other movies with John. I did uh, Life and Time with John Floyd Bean uh, with Paul Newman and that he directed. And I played a character called Bad Bob, which he was, he was coming in town to running for Paul Newman and ended up getting shot by Paul Newman. The other movie I did with John as an actor it was called The Greatest Battle. And it was with Henry Fonda, myself, Samantha Edgar, Helmut Berger, um, 
Don was playing an Irish industrialist. Timmy Fonda was playing an American general. I was playing sort of a good Nazi who was attracted to Samantha Egger. Opening scene was a dinner where we're discussing why Adolf Hitler refused to shake hands with Jesse Owens. And it was the conversation. And, and uh, it was an Italian director, and I do spoke no English. And I was concerned about my German accent. And I, I went to John, I said, John, because I'd done Fat City with him uh, by now. And I said, John, I'm concerned about my accent. Oh, no, 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 don't talk to me about your accent. And what about my accent? I'm acting now, Space. I'm not a director. You know, don't bother me. <laughs> so, but I was concerned, you know, because I wasn't sure he should be. I, need, I needed some help with my. Anyway, God was an extraordinary gift in my life. And uh, I was so honored and thrilled that I got a chance to know him and befriend him and work with him. It was an amazing experience. When you look back, is Fat City, is that one of the ones that stands out for you as being one of the better experiences? Oh, absolutely. Without question. Yeah. I think in many ways it's probably. I mean, it's hard to compare movies. It was certainly one of my, my, my best movies, my, one of my favorite, that's for sure. I'm curious, what are you working on these days? I'm Right now, even as we speak, I'm at CBS Radford Studio shooting Man with a Plan, a sitcom. I play Matt LeBlanc's dad. It's on CBS, and it will be on the air February 4th, the day after Super Bowl, on CBS, yeah. Well, Mr. Keach, thank you so much for your time. It is always a pleasure talking with you. Well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate talking to you, too. It's been a great day. All right, we are back, and we're talking about Fat City. You know, it was 50 years ago, thereabouts, that Stacey Keach made this movie. So he was saying that John Huston just kind of came up with that pause that we're talking about at the end on the fly. But it was actually, it was in the script. So I just wanted to set the record straight a little bit on that. I mean, it's not called out as much as maybe it might have been, but there is a thing in there where he says, you know, it's interesting. I'll read a little bit from this, the script here. It's, it's really concentrates on sound. So Ernie sips his coffee, then Tully slips his, the Chinese waiter gazing into space sags back against the cabinet. Tully and Ernie are looking straight ahead. The sound is at a high volume. Now we hear the scrape of Ernie's soles, the sucking of Tully's lips at his cup. The silence continues. Tully again stirs his coffee and returns the spoon to his saucer with a clank. Ernie drinks and we hear the sound of his napkin across his mouth. It is a silence of at least two minutes, a silence so prolonged that it becomes bizarre, so absolute that it is like the truth, a profound spiritual expression by two men facing the void. The frame does not freeze. There are small movements. A head tilts, a hand props up a chin. The Chinese waiter shuffles away, pulling at his dewlap. Ernie and Tully stare ahead. They drink. Tully sucks his teeth. Ernie now stirs his coffee, and the silence continues. Fade out. The end. So there was that moment, but it might have not necessarily come across when they're shooting that. And like I said, it was 50 years ago thereabouts, so I'm going to cut Stacy Keach some slack. It was great talking with him again, though, because he's such a nice dude, and it was just 
such a pleasure to be able to talk about this and to talk about John Houston, especially, and to hear the stories of them. And in Keech's autobiography, he talks a lot about how um, it almost sounds like uh, he was being taken for a ride by John Houston when it came to playing backgammon for money. And this really was kind of a, a comeback movie for John Houston, from what I understand. It sounded like some of his movies in the 60s weren't necessarily doing as well, but this one put him a little bit more back on the map. I know that Reflections in a Golden Eye in 67 made some waves, but I don't think that that was a hit. And then I'm not sure what his last hit was. I don't know if Night of the Iguana or The Misfits. I don't think Freud came off overly well, but this really put him back on there. And he was doing a lot more notable roles for his acting than necessarily his directing at this point. It's funny you bring up the Misfits and Night of the Iguana because I think of uh, Fat City as belonging to a, a category of film that I I never really had a term for growing up. It was a category of film I hated as a kid because uh, it's it's an adult uh, an adult genre, but it's the um, miserable adults yelling at each other. Both those other films kind of I think fit into that that genre nicely too. <laughs> Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? That seemed to be a thing. Uh, growing up, I'd turn on the TV or something like that, and I'd see miserable married couples or, or lovers uh, just hurling abuse at each other. And I was like, oh, it's one of those movies, and uh, I don't like it. <laughs> and I did, since we're setting the record straight, I just wanted to correct myself uh, when I said that this was Susan Tyrell's second film. She had actually been in a number of films and TV series before this. So she had been in, uh, been down so long. It looks like up to me and, um, shoot out and a couple other things. So I'm aware I can look at IMDb just as well as you can. This was really the first role that she did that brought her to kind of, I think major prominence and she got nominated for an Oscar for it, which is kind of yeah fascinating. Cause I mean, at this point in the game, she's definitely known more as a cult actress Man, I love her. That's all. <laughs> I just love Susan Tyrell so much. One thing I wanted to bring up, um, Mike, you had um, alluded to something in promoting this uh, episode we're recording now on Facebook, where uh, Van Halen has a reference to Fat City and their song Unchained. And, you know, I'm a huge Van Halen fan, and that's Van Halen, not Van Hagar, for the record. And, uh, <laughs> but I, and I've listened to Unchained like hundreds of times, but, you know, I have this history of misunderstanding David Lee Roth lyrics. Like, even when I was little in Panama, I thought he was saying he's a ski bag, and it's actually ease the seat back. This is why you are the man, Mike. How many people would be able to invoke a Van Halen song? And a John Houston movie together, worlds colliding. He's a ski bag. Wow. I'm serious. I'm dead serious. This is, um, I mean, I, I did not even understand the real lyrics. I was an adult and I was corrected. I was like, oh, that makes more sense. I mean, I still think that they say, I guess it rains down in Africa in the Toto song. Ew. <laughs> so I didn't know the indicator put this out on uh, Blu-ray. What's What else is on the disc? There's a commentary track. There's a really great featurette where they talk to Stacy. They talk to Candy Clark. Um, they talk to, uh, I think, one of the assistant DPs and the casting director, uh, who was also the same casting director that uh, worked on The Godfather. Um, what did you say? Wasn't Brando up for the role or considered for it? 
He was, yeah. Man, Keach owns this so much that I, I, I wouldn't want to see anybody else. You know, I mean, Brando, Brando's great. And Brando, I mean, it would have been interesting, but I don't know. It's like, Keach has like, he just, there's like a subtlety to him and there's a sensitivity to him that I don't know if Brando really could have done that. You know, I mean, he was great, but I just, I, I, yeah, it's Stacey Keach, baby. Yeah, I imagine that they talked to Fred Roos about this because Roos, you know, he was behind a lot of great things, worked with Coppola a lot. You mentioned The Godfather. He worked um, on casting The Conversation. He even works with Sofia Coppola, like producing um, The Virgin Suicides and stuff. And I've been trying to get an interview with that guy for I don't know how long, but he's a little elusive, um, just kind of going back and forth with him. But yeah, he's behind between producing and casting he's done just an amazing amount of work and uh, if people aren't familiar with fred ruse i highly recommend that you check out uh, what he's done for the industry because i mean all the way back to uh, flight to fury which i talked about on this podcast forever ago and backdoor to hell and drive he said i mean this guy has been doing a ton of great work for since 1964 and maybe even before that i hope he listens to this and will grant an interview with you because that would be that would be the best because yeah that's that resume is uh pretty fierce well and then connie hall doing the cinematography i mean you don't really get much better than that no oh my god and the cinematography in this film is so so beautiful it's like mike you'd mentioned you know, when you, that scene where we first see Oma in that bar with the polka dot dress and there's like this kind of um, mid distant shot of her with the smoke and the natural light. And I mean, it looks like it looks like a painting. It, it's just it's such a perfect shot. And, you know, to really the bars look like bars, not just because of the actual you know set and that they are probably were real bars, but the way everything's lit and presented, it's perfect. I love just looking at the bars and the diners and in the gyms in this film. Uh, I was struck by that final diner set. Uh, last time I, I saw it, uh, the, uh, you know, it just looks like it's a warehouse. Like the, there's paint, there's a paint line. It's only painted up to a, you know, a certain height in this green color. But then you, you see that the, the ceiling goes higher and higher. You know, it's this warehouse that, you know, it's not a warehouse anymore. Whatever business it had been is is out of business, and now it's a diner. And uh, you know, it's an odd, odd building for a diner. But it's you know, they just set up some tables, and uh, you know, they're probably card tables and and cinder blocks for a bar. I love the locations and the and the sets. If they if they built any, they they did a, a hell of a job. But the locations are are beautiful. Yeah, it really feels like this is a very lived-in world. And, I mean, with those gyms, you can always almost smell the sweat come on off of these guys. I would like to mention that I think Oma deserves her own, like, T-shirt line or something like that. All of her declarative statements, you know, things like, they won't leave you alone in this world. Everybody has a right to live his own life, so screw everybody. I don't believe in kicking a man when he's down. I've never been ashamed of the act of love, things like that. I, I just think she just throws these things out like, let me tell you what I believe. Terrific non sequiturs for the moment. White man is the vermin of the earth. <laughs> don't, 
don't don't forget up yours cowboy like that i will totally contribute to this uh crowdfunding if you get this going jed i fully i fully <laughs> endorse and enable you on this decision <laughs> yeah well it'd be you know 200 people worldwide who would think that was amazing 200 kick-ass people come on that's right <laughs> identify each other coming soon to tpublic.com all right we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show this is Jack Burton in the Pork Chop Express, and I'm talking to whoever's listening out there. It's a pretty amazing planet we live on here, and a man would have to be some kind of fool to think we're all alone in this universe. There is a hidden world where ancient evil weaves a modern mystery. What's going on here? Is this some kind of... Magic. The darkest magic. Ow! They call it Little China. Finally, we shall bring order out of chaos. It's where big trouble was waiting for Jack Burton. Who? Jack Burton. Me. Jack. Jack. Jack! They told him to go to hell. He made one move. And that's just where he's going. Somebody, I don't care who, tell me what is going on. How are you going to spring us? I have no idea. There are many mysteries, many unanswerable questions, even in a life as short as yours. destiny rests in your capable hands. Hey, I'll do my best. Oh, God, is this really happening? This is going to take Cracker Jack timing, Wang. One, two, three. We may be trapped. Total concentration. Safety. Oh, yeah. You ready, Jack? I was born ready. Way to go, Jack. Jack Burton's coming to rescue your summer. Hey, what more can a guy ask for? 20th Century Fox presents Kurt Russell in John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. It's all in the reflexes. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Big Trouble in Little China, where I'll be joined by Vincenzo Natale and Tony Black. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Heather and Jedediah. Heather, what is the latest with you? I just recently wrote an article about cultural gatekeepers, fanboy bullies, and the art of not being a dick over at diabolikemagazine.com. Also, the Bizarro Encyclopedia of Film, Volume 1, which was written by the great John Skip and myself, should be available for pre-order in January. Uh, and you can find me on all manners of social media, so come on down. How about you, Jed? What's going on with you? Uh, the latest is I've still just got uh, one... One book available in English, Peckerwood, is available. You can pick that up if you like dirty crime fiction. And I write the blog, Hardboiled Wonderland, about crime fiction and film. Stop by anytime. 
Thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
laying soft upon my skin Like the shadows on the wall Come and lay down by my side Till the early morning light All I'm taking is your time Help me make it through the night I don't care who's right or wrong I don't try to understand Let the devil take tomorrow Lord, tonight I need a friend Yesterday is dead and gone And tomorrow's out of sight And it's sad to be alone Help me make it through the night If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.